Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 24th, 2022. I'm here, I'm Charles Hain. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster and all around man about town. I mean, in COVID times, whatever that means. Uh, I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with cinematographer Todd Blankenship. Hello. I am here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hello. This week, we're going to be talking about MGM is now owned by Amazon. What does that mean for filmmakers? We are going to be talking about the passing of films into complete obscurity and oblivion when they get lost which is terrifying for us all and has a lot to do with digital and analog. In tech news, we're going to be talking about the, they're coming out with new IMAX cameras, which like, let's be real, it's probably not going to affect any of us directly, but it's still super exciting. And we're going to be talking about all that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first story this week, MGM Another studio gets a new owner. Amazon has now completed their purchase of MGM, which most people theorize that everything is about rights, right? That it's not just about like, you know, they're, they're probably not that obsessed about the Warner's lot. Although the Warner's lot's a nice lot and maybe they will turn it into condos or something because it's in a great location. They're more concerned about IP, which is what everybody's concerned about. It's why Amazon paid so much money for the Lord of the Rings IP to make a Lord of the Rings show. and. Obviously, the major IP that MGM still has in their pocket contractually is Bond. And it's an interesting time to be buying the Bond IP as the last Bond movie was clearly Daniel Craig's last. So there's an opportunity to see where it can go in new directions to see whether or not. I mean, I don't think anybody's really excited about a Bond TV show, but to see if maybe there is a Bond TV show. Everybody forgets there was a Bond TV show, James Bond Jr., in the 80s. A favorite of the podcast. It's come a up favorite a of the podcast. Oh. Well, it, it <laughs> also comes up because it's an interesting IP story where one of the original writers who adapted Ian Fleming's book to, I think it was GoldenEye or it was Dr. No, ended up with part of the rights. So they still had a right to make James Bond stuff, which is why they made the weird Sean Connery early 80s James Bond movie. That was, he had the rights to it in that case because of the way the court case broke out where he's never say never again never say never again and then he was threatening to make a young james bond which is why broccoli actually made james bond jr to sort of combat that it's all so the show was actually called it was called james bond jr it was a cartoon so young (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes and it was a cartoon oh it It, was a cartoon yeah Yeah. it was a a child i was picturing like a live action like super serious show called James Bond Jr. Well, that's what well, the, that was, what's his face was trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but also the new movie by that guy who's Spider-Man. Who's that guy who's Spider-Man? Tom Holland? Yeah. So Tom Holland's new movie, the action movie he just started in was originally, he pitched it as a, I would really love to do a young James Bond movie. Could we do oh. this? And this is my pitch for it. Oh. And then people were like, we'd like to do an action movie with you. Uncharted. I think yeah. was the one. That yeah. is yeah. it. Yeah. He was like, it. can we do it? And he was like, I'd like to do Young James Bond. And they're like, well, I don't think that's where we're taking IP. I suspect it probably was related to the fact that the studio is in the middle of being bought. Like, that's a complicated time to try and figure out new things for an IP. So I think that's probably why they were like, hey, but we could just do it as a standalone movie that's not Young James Bond. It definitely makes more sense to have Tom Holland play a Young James Bond than Nathan Drake or whatever the character is. Yeah, uh, from Uncharted. That's interesting. 
Yeah. So we're now in this like very interesting space where like another studio, I mean, look, studios have been bought for a long time. It's a long time since like the head of the, you know, since the days where Metro Goldwyn and Mayer, like Louis B. Mayer was still alive and still barking orders and creating the Oscars in order to make people compete with each other instead of compete with the studios for more money. Like it's a long time. Like the studios have all been owned, you know, uh, even the Godfather, like Paramount was famously owned by Bloodhorn at a gas company whose name escapes me. And you guys will make me sound smart in the edit when somebody remembers anyway. So, but MGM yeah. going to Amazon, it does feel like news. It, it also feels Amazon did feel like this place. And, and I actually don't know if it has been the case in the last year or so, but it was this place for like different types of storytelling to find a home. And, you know, obviously that was sort of what they were, you know, patting themselves on the back for in addition to, putting a lot of money behind, you know, for your consideration campaigns for these indie, more indie skewing projects. And No Film School put out a post uh, or a piece just in November about this indie project that was filmed over the course of Quarantine by Ryan Silva. And I thought it was like fascinating because it was like, we made this short for this or this feature for this much money. And now it's on Amazon Prime. And I wonder if they're going to move away from even these, you know, more polished indie projects to make way for these, you know, more traditional studio type movies now that they're part of MGM as part of the slate. Yeah. To me, this whole thing is fascinating because this industry is 100 plus years old now, but MGM is one of the, a hundred years ago, MGM was the, was the super studio Mm -hmm. um, in the twenties and thirties. It was the more stars than they have in the sky or something was their saying. It was Louis B. Mayer, but it was also the guy who, now I'm blanking on a name, Irving Thalberg, the original super producer, like who really revolutionized the format. And he was the genius, the boy genius at MGM who helped build what the feature film format essentially is and has continued to be to this day. So MGM is really important historically if you're a film historian. And the MGM library, which is not part of this deal, and this is an interesting sort of side thing if you care about these sorts of things and film history, the MGM library, which is massive and has all those gone with the winds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how come if Amazon's buying MGM how come Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz, et cetera, et cetera, are on Warner? Because Ted Turner bought MGM in 1985 or somewhere in the 80s, and he bought all the classics, but he gave away the United Artists part of MGM, and that was the production entity that continued to make Bond movies. So that library of classics that we kind of think of when we, some of us think of when we think of MGM, that's mostly like part of the Turner, TCM, Warner's side of things. So it's just interesting if you're tracking the history of it, because it's not that long a history to go back, that these, these pieces of these pies get carved up many different ways. And so MGM here at this point, it's Bond. It's a handful of other big ones. Robocop, Rocky. 12 Angry Men. I don't know if they're going to try and make 13 Angry Men or 12 Angry Women or who knows. But there's a lot of, uh, there's certainly a lot of IP there, but it's not the MGM library. And also, if you care about this sort of stuff, 
as long as we're talking about the history of it. MGM, the studio itself, was in Culver City and is now Sony. That's the Sony lot, which is one of the biggest lots in Los Angeles. So those are just as interesting little tidbits. Maybe not so interesting. I don't know. To me, this is just like another example of, of where like corporate entities carve up, recarve, eat up, swallow, get bigger. And Amazon is massive. And it's one of the ruling corporations in the world and will continue to grow. No signs of slowing down. And I, to me, the Bond thing is just like Bond, Lord of the Rings. It's like Apple and Amazon can throw so much money at these things. It doesn't matter. It's like, it's the window dressing in their massive virtual superstore that is not relying on what happens to Lord of the Rings or Bond to make the lights stay on. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a piece of the, it's like Bond is a fun toy. Like if we're making content, and obviously it's going to be expensive and they're going to care about how that money is spent, but it's nowhere near what keeps that engine churning. So in, in your mind, is is the Bond thing like probably the main the main reason they would make that acquisition? Like new new Bond era? Is that like the probably the main thing that is on their mind? I suspect, well, me personally, I think that it's just this sort of arms race, the streaming arms race of we have a couple, there's a couple other big fish in this sea with them. There's Disney, obviously. There's Warner's. And there's Netflix sort of is Netflix is like a weird little engine that could in this battle, oddly enough. But like when you've got Disney, Warner's, Apple and Amazon and Amazon is like as big as they get. And I think to them, it's like, yeah, let's like scoop up. You know, I keep wondering when when Apple will do something like buy Netflix. You know, mm. I, I like I know Netflix has no interest in that. But, you know, the, the arms race, it's going to be there's only going to be a few at the top in the streaming wars. And I think Amazon, it's like Bond is the the feather in the cap of this acquisition, but it's really about just scooping up more assets. My favorite way this was put is that we're all in a reverse content tontine. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Say that uh, one more like, time, content tontine? Content tontine? <laughs> it's a I love content it. tontine. So if yes. you guys don't know what a tontine is, a tontine yeah, what is, that? is- content tontine. <laughs> I, I tried so hard to name a production company after that. I tried every variation of like contentine, reverse content. So a tontine is this incredibly stupid <laughs> retirement system that was like popular around 100 years ago. And basically the idea was a whole bunch of people would put money in the pot and then the last person to survive would get it all out. And the problem is, is if you've ever seen a murder mystery, uh, it incentivizes murder. <laughs> Oh my so gosh, you, you, this you is end insane. Up in the... I can't believe oh, that was great. a thing. Well, that's a tontine. Oh yeah, there's there's some good movies, murder mysteries, and a great Simpsons episode about it. It's really better there's... for drama than it is for retirement. Yeah. So basically, someone pointed out that like we're in a content tontine, where right now, everybody is trying to be the last one standing. Because whoever is that last one standing is going to make boatloads of money. Mm-hmm. Because like, but right now, no one is making money at this. Netflix is losing money. Apple is, it's a loss leader for everybody. Netflix has investor money. Apple has hardware money. Amazon has all the money. And they're willing <laughs> to lose money on Disney it. Disney has theme park money. Yes, exactly. I, man, I, I wish I'd said that in the right order, but whatever, we'll take it. <laughs> and what, where that really puts us is that puts us in this sort of interesting 
position where we're like, oh, we're like watching this whole thing try and come together that like whoever wins is holy shit going to win all the money. Mm-hmm. But one they- ring to rule them all. One streamer. One stream to rule them all. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ten quick, quick, quick aside too, though. I want to be. I want to make this clear to the listeners, and then let you open it back up to you guys. But it's not like there isn't that much. Even though the MGM, the old school stuff, is is like uh, crown jewelish sort of. Amazon is getting four thousand movies and seventeen thousand TV shows as a part oh of this gosh. deal. So that's a lot of content to mine. You know, if you want to do. I don't know, The Handmaid's Tale 2 or Legally Blonde 5 or whatever. There's so much stuff in there. So anyway, continue. So there's moves that they can make, that they will make, because they're all in this tontine of they're all trying to be the last one standing. And it's, you know, I think there's a lot there. For me, I still think it's about Bond, but maybe I just like the Bond franchise and I'm hoping that this means there's going to be more interesting Bond. But you're right. There is a whole bunch of other IP there for them to mind and do interesting things. I wonder Hmm. if it's going to come full circle in a different way, because obviously like with the breaking up of the studio system and this whole antitrust thing that happened in the forties, I think. Yeah. Late forties. We're, I, I think we're going to be seeing more antitrust stuff happening from a tech angle. And I wonder if this, I can't say the word, Charles. You're going to have to say it for me. Content. Tontine. Ta- content. Tontine. It sounds, I think- <laughs> it sounds like a character from Star Wars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if there won't ultimately be a last streamer or studio or entity standing because big tech will be broken up before we get to that point. And what does Do you that think- mean? So, I mean, you weren't on the episode we talked about this, but, you know, one of the things that Amazon already did was as soon as the Paramount decrees, which Amazon, I believe, was involved to lobbying to get rid of them, as soon as the Paramount decrees were done, they, like, immediately bought a movie theater, so which mm-hmm. they wouldn't have been allowed to do before the end of the Paramount decrees. So I think we're in an interesting space. What makes you optimistic that there will be antitrust in tech? 
because I don't have that optimism. I was having a conversation with a comedy, a comedian who has a show in New York called Internet Explorer. And he <laughs> that he said that and I was like, yep, sounds right. This is it's coming. The people is coming. And I've worked in tech and I feel like it's very easy to drink the Kool-Aid. And I think only now, only just now are we starting to have a conversation about sort of the tip of the iceberg of the implications of this. And we're so we're going to keep operating at this like growth, high growth, high acquisition. This is the the new normal. But I have a feeling that regulation will happen soon. Feels like to me, it has so much to do with the who's in power in the government and what their interests are to me mm-hmm. will dictate whether or not that happens. But there's also other factors like fascinating random factors like a pandemic. I think the pandemic, which no one can predict, obviously, plays a role in the ability to break the Paramount decrees because the thing was kind of like, yeah, movie theaters, eh, whatever, you know, it's like it's but, you know, who knows where that leaves you in 10 years once you once you've let the cat out of that bag, you know, once you've let Amazon and Netflix buy theaters and Disney buy theaters more than just the one they have here, the uh, whatever it's called, the El Capitan. Anyway, Mm -hmm. that stuff is is fascinating. And I keep thinking about with content Tantine, Jedi smuggler from the planet, <laughs> from the book of Boba Fett. I keep thinking that it's, it's more like when we get down to just two or three, will audiences be that upset? Because I think a lot of people dislike how many services are coming at them and charging mm-hmm. them. And it's a weird, I don't want to like blur it into a political, like fascistic thing, but I think there's a, there's a train run, the trains will run on time appeal of being like, look, if I could just do Disney, Amazon and Apple, oh, that would be really, I think a lot of people feel that way because they're kind of sick of having to do like Peacock. I got to do another one of these. Is there really anything on there that I need? But you're also, everyone is assuming in that scenario that you're like, oh, I will just do those three and they'll each be 15 or 20 a month so it'll still be less than a cable bill. But if one wins, you better believe oh, it's going to yeah. be 99 a month. Mm-hmm. Sure, all and they're the already, thing. yeah, you're right. I think they're already going up. They're already looking for ways to keep building up that profit margin. And Yeah, I mean, continue. Netflix is is raising their stuff. and That's right, and they're going to take away penalties. multiple. Yeah, the, the, I want to let you finish, but they're going to take away the multiple passwords to one account then. Yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, multiple users. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a thing that's been on my mind. We're we're like more and more and more getting back to where it's like, you know, what the solution would be? You pay one amount, and there's like this, <laughs> there's there's channels, and you can flip between the channels, and it's different streaming services. <laughs> we're getting we're we're Truly. very very close. We're getting back back to where we started in a weird way. Hulu, you you can buy on Hulu access to HBO, you know, the platform allows for that. So I, 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 think- do, I got so mad at myself for the longest time. I didn't real. I, man, this is so stupid. But when HBO max came out, uh-huh. I was paying for HBO through Amazon prime. And I was so annoyed because I see, I don't keep up with this stuff. Like, like all the, who owns what, kind of franchises and all like who which streaming service has these different you know studios under it and all that like i don't keep track of any of that and at some point my friend was like 
I was like, yeah, I, I would watch that, but I don't have HBO Max. And he was like, you were just talking about an HBO show that you were watching. I was like, yeah, but I, I have that on Prime. <laughs> and he's like, dude, that can get you into your HBO Max account. It's the same thing. Oh <laughs> and then I, I totally found out, like I just logged right into HBO Max with, with that account. And I was like, Damn it. So yeah, it's all it's all a little confusing and, and if you don't stay on top of it, it's it's easy to get, you know, kind of lost in it all. And you are one of our tech guys and a cinematographer. And so if <laughs> yeah, it's confusing but- for you, can we reasonably assume it is confusing for most consumers? I know. My poor for Nana sure. probably has like eight different HBO accounts on all these <laughs> platforms. Yeah, it was like that weird discovery that in 2014, AOL was still making like $70 million a month off people who had landline subscriptions. Oh, gosh. And you're like, how many of them actually knew they still had an AOL landline subscription? Like, but, you know, once you get it all set up once, like nobody wants to ever think about it ever again. Our next story this week is let's talk about how the transition from film to digital is sort of impacting the way in which some films are disappearing. Hmm. So sad. Well, yeah, I'm, so that so what we're talking about is basically like physical media going the, by the wayside, right? And and that meaning that somewhere there's like movies that will never be seen again because they only existed in physical media. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. There was a, we had an article this week on No Film School. So, you know, it is a, it has been an ongoing thing that we've always been dealing with in the history of cinema that like movies disappear. And like, there are some horrible stories. Like there are TV shows from the fifties where like all of it was stored on Kinescope in like the storage facility in Staten Island. And then at one point in the seventies, they were like, no one cares about 50 shows. And they dumped that all in the East river. Like, cause it was still the seventies. So that was still how you disposed of stuff. And they were like, we'll just clean out this whole storage facility. And then, of course, 70s and 80s, there's all sorts of shows that, like, they kept reusing the tape. So there was a tape master for, like, eight years. And then they were like, nobody's going to care about this TV show from eight years ago. And this is actually something that's really interesting to think about in terms of the film digital transition. Because I remember so clearly, I mean, you know, I was one of those people who was really hanging on to shooting film. And one of the arguments we used to make with producers, and I still think it's probably a valid, valid argument, is once you factor in archiving you end up with a tremendous amount more cost for digital than you do with film. Because with film, once you make a film print, you can stick it in a salt mine in Nebraska and it'll last 500 years, relatively unscathed. We don't know that for a fact because film's only about 140 years old. (laughs) But based on how it's aged in the last 140 years, we're pretty confident you get a 500-year storage out of film. Whereas digital, like, try and fire up a hard drive from five years ago. Like, try and fire up, like, try and find your old college files from... I'm going to say five, 10 years ago, because some of you are young. But like for me, I like nothing I did in the 90s, I still have, except for the film I shot on 16 millimeter, which I can retransfer if I want. That's it. It's the only thing I have in my life that I made before. Actually, I'm going to say before 2008, the only things I've made that I still have access to were made on film because I can retransfer those negatives. And so I think that's what sort of the um, article was about. And then the big news in this article was that I shot Andy Warhol is effectively missing, which is kind of huge news because that was like a huge indie hit. And like Julie Taymor's Titus and Mary Heron's I Shot Andy Warhol are basically not available 
And yeah, Julie Taymor's Titus is the one that that like stands out to me because it's from 1999. So part of this is like you would think there. I think the quote was half the movies made before 1950 are lost, and no major distributor is looking for them. More than 90 percent of films made before 1929 are lost forever. But to think of a movie from 1999 that's lost, it highlights, I think, that. The way Mary, the quote from Mary Heron, most indie films are produced by small companies and most of them go bankrupt. And then mm-hmm. that leads to a pattern of, well, who's really going to get the rights? Do all the things we were just talking about in the last segment, like who's going to grab the rights, monetize it, put it on a library, make it, you know, if it's, if it's hard to get the, if it's hard to figure out who owns it and where it is in the first place, like that plus then, well, it wasn't a big hit, you know, like then I think it just falls away. And yeah, it's devastating for the study of film and the preservation of the film legacy, certainly. That that is honestly so scary to hear because, you know, I think of some of the earliest instances of people actually filming just daily life. And have you guys seen those recent like recolorizations of these first film moments like from the early 1900s oh yeah that are using ai to to also smooth it out yeah Yeah. that is like such a fascinating window into a moment in time and you know i there i i watch those and i see like a man kind of like dawdling around and i was like oh he dawdles around just like me and there's something very like humanizing and connecting with the past in that way and specifically with indie films you capture sometimes that sort of authenticity of real life because you have fewer resources. So you might be filming, you know, on the street and such value of being able to see that versus like something that's produced by a studio that has been preserved and been archived properly. And so, you know, I want, I'm like, who is going to come in and save this? Jeff Bezos, can you do this? Do this one for us? Just <laughs> Come on. I think, I, I think there's this like, you know, see what you don't know about disappears. You know, it just makes Mm -hmm. sense. It's hard for us to hold on to the past that is super duper famous. It's hard for us. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's hard for us to convince people that they need to value or find the value in or even just explore silent movies. You know, Mm -hmm. that's that's already a battle. And we're talking about the biggest ones, let alone that there's little things out there and more and more every year that vanish because... They were not noteworthy in some way at the time to enough people to break through the noise. And we have a growing problem with that because we have more noise now than we ever did before. And we think everything's permanent. The internet is written in ink thing, but it's more like, but will anyone care to find it? Mm -hmm. So all the things like what, what server is it hosted on or where does it live or where does the internet ages and things are forgotten. Like there will be relics that you'll have to dig up and find and maybe they'll be harder to access. And maybe, so I think we have to keep in mind that just because it's digital or digitized doesn't mean it's forever. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy to find or keep your hard drive example, Charles, I think is a really good one. I'm surrounded by hard drives from various things. Like at a certain point, they become obsolete and the things on them become harder to access or bring back or look at. Well, when things are stored on hard drives too, it's like, it's hard to even re- remember what to remember. I mean, like one thing that I, I find frustrating often is like when I sit down to watch a movie 
it feels like my my thought process and like the things that I sort of think about watching it it's dictated by the whatever the automatically generated things that the algorithm on whatever streaming service I'm looking at is telling me to look at and then I might see like a certain color a certain actor or something and be like oh I could I could watch this or that but it's like sometimes I wonder if there's like things that I love that I I haven't seen in like 10 years just because the whatever algorithm hasn't like put it back in front of me. And there's like so many movies and things that I've wanted to watch over the years that, you know, like I wanted to buy a physical, like one movie that I keep trying to watch is uh, Wong Kar Wai's 2046. And I can't find a good copy of it. It's like on Amazon Prime in this like horrible transfer that looks awful and you can't get it on. I can't find it in any stores or anything like that. It's, it's, it's frustrating because it's like, you know, this didn't used to be a problem. And, you know, one thing that I, I I actually got to live through firsthand was you guys might have heard like, like there's a couple, I think it was two years ago now, maybe one time is weird now. But when Texas had that big freeze and every the grids were going down and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff, I didn't have Internet for like a week. And it was it was really interesting because I was so glad I had a bunch of Blu-rays around because that was <laughs> what we watched that week, you know, and it was just like it was so interesting having the experience of like sort of being like, Oh yes, I have this Blu-ray. Yes. You know, and, and just being able to experience that feeling. It, it's just interesting. Like, what do you guys do? I'm curious. What do you guys do with like pictures and videos, like personal ones that mean a lot to you? Like, do you, do you put them in the cloud and assume that that's safe or do you print them out? Like I, I try to do a healthy mix of of both, but it's funny how quickly we've just sort of gone to like the cloud being the safest way to store things. Well, what's funny about that in particular is that, so I tried to do, uh, it was my only like businessy related Kickstarter, but about, God, nine years ago now, I tried to do a Kickstarter for a service called Archived, which was going to take anything you wanted to archive and put it up on three different cloud servers on two continents. And that was it. Oh. That was the service. And I like, I got an article written about it in Red Shark News and I promoted it heavily and we were like, and like I, I did the biggest social push I've ever gotten and I got a hundred emails asking clarifying questions and no one, zero contributions to the Kickstarter. And like, oh wow. And it was, well, and it was interesting because it was like, you know, I've done short films where like, there's no back. There's, you get nothing back. People are just like, oh, I like you. I'll support you. I'll kick you 50 bucks, whatever. And I've done that to so many of my friends' Kickstarters over the years where I'm like, I like you. I support you. Here's 20 bucks, whatever. But like, no one cared. And I was like, but no, guys, aren't you worried about like, you know, and our whole pitch video was like, guys, like Google Drive, like none of them are that safe. Like there was a fire at a Google Drive storage facility in Holland where all this media got lost and people lost things. And like, like there is no one safe thing. Like at minimum, you want three copies. So I, you know, we never launched that service. I still think it would be a useful service, but I'm, because of the education process of trying to turn that into a business, I'm a big nerd about this. So like, I have three copies of everything. Like one of my copies is a service called Amazon Glacier, which is incredibly cheap online cold storage. And cold storage means you can't get to it very easily. Like, it's not like it's just there on a website. Like you have to specifically like point to a bucket and say, return that bucket to me, please. And then you get it. Like it comes online later and you have to pay for that. But it's really cheap. I think like every movie I've ever made, including the dailies of a lot of projects, cost me like 80 cents a month on Amazon Glacier. And then, yeah, for like personal photos of my daughter, we do a a printed out book once a year. And then everything is in Dropbox, Google Drive and Apple Photos. Because I'm like, 
It's tra- I, like, but I'm a nurse. Like, I'm way beyond what I think any normal person does. Yeah, I think I, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I I in terms of like photography stuff, I generally shoot film photography so like i i keep all the the negatives and take make sure i take lots lots of pictures of family and my daughter just stuff that i know will kind of maintain forever but i do often struggle with you know i put i put almost everything on on dropbox and i I often think like man if i ever just like didn't want to pay for this account anymore that would really be inconvenient Yeah, I mean, your story about being without things and being grateful you had Blu-rays sh- sent a brief shiver down my spine simply because I'm so close to giving away like what's left of a, what was once a massive library of DVDs and Blu-rays, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm, I really like books as a physical media, even though more and more I turn to digital versions. And I, I don't feel there's a part of me that feels a little bit like as much as I'm all for the, the preservation of it in the world, as for myself, it's kind of like, it's like ashes to ashes. <laughs> like there's a part of me that's like, well, if it's lost, it's lost. You know, if like I have everything stored on the cloud and all these pictures and we've printed out some of our family, but maybe a lot of them don't make it. And maybe that's just the way things go. But I don't, I feel way more passionately about how that turns to works of art, I guess, because I think that that's something that is kind of that's a cultural inheritance, not a personal one. It's for historians, you know. I, I'm on the same page as you, George, in terms of like fewer choose the few pictures of the few moments or the few things to have physically, and then if the rest falls away, it wasn't it wasn't important enough to me to print out or acquire. And no offense to Blu-rays, they're aesthetically not very pleasing to be seen on a shelf as opposed to a book. But, but yeah, when it comes to these works of art or these, you know, projects that are thought put, you know, it's, it's different to archive a full feature that was made in the 90s and is now lost. And I think we can let our TikToks slide away into the abyss, into that internet <laughs> hole, and hopefully nobody sure. looks at them in the future. Can you imagine the historians going back and they're like, this phase... Oh gosh. Well, it's hard because we we know that history (laughs) has a way of history has a way of erasing itself and its knowledge. Like libraries have been burned, like great gaps in our knowledge about ourselves and our past exist. So Mm. it's funny to think about a thousand years from now if the version of that exists on this earth was like, well, all we have from the period is TikToks. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how we'll have to piece together what happened. That would be fascinating. I mean, the whole thing about sea shanties would take up chapters and years of schooling. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that my daughter is going to assume that the only thing her dad ever did was sing sea shanties. Because I'm sure they'll just use TikTok <laughs> to teach high school when she's in high school. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, that's, that's just how it's going to be. All right, moving on to on tech news. <laughs> the first tech news is last week we talked about the Mac Studio, which is killer good. And then this week I got to do a hands-on review with it, which went up on the No Film School site. And holy cow, it's killer good. It's like it's like a two thousand dollar powerhouse machine. Mac Studio rocks. Check out the review. And then in, in newsy news, IMAX is going to make four new camera bodies and also work on lens technology. And this is huge news for like so many reasons. So like obviously, film isn't dead, right? Like we still all see all sorts of people. Like Chris Nolan loves to still shoot on film, and Tarantino and Spielberg, and there's all sorts of you know bigger directors. Uh, Jordan Peele just did his new movie in IMAX, like, nope, 
such a great name for a movie. <laughs> such a good name. For a second, All I thought you those... hated Jordan Peele, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Like, that's that's but, a little harsh. But then I was like, that's, oh yeah, that's his, that's, that's his movie. Okay. That's not the last time that's going to happen to somebody about that movie title. Like, that's a deliberate, <laughs> yeah. like, trying to start arguments movie title, and I respect it. But, like, you know, I remember... This might have been before I was writing at no film school, but I remember really clearly the moment when I was like, oh, this is the last film camera that's ever going to be designed. Like, Aerie had the Aerie cam, and Panavision had whatever Millennium XL or whatever the last one was. And there was a moment where, like, Aerie sent out a press release being like, we, we, we've stopped accepting new orders, Aerie bodies. Like, we're going to sell out the stock we have, but we're not building anymore. Because it's like, it's really hard to do engineering when you're like, we're going to sell 10 of these. Like, it's not impossible, but it's hard. And uh, so there hasn't been like a new camera body in the last 10 years, the way there used to be every couple of years, like it'd be the area cam, it'd be the 416, there'd be like new stuff that would have some new feature. And it's been a while. And IMAX is like, yeah, we're going to do four new camera bodies, guys. And I mean, part, part of the way IMAX is going to get away from this, away with this is obviously they're an owner rental business, like they own their packages and rent it out. So they don't have to like mass market it to make a living. They don't have to like make a selling business in it. They can really engineer it to be up to spec, but it's also, it's just cool as shit. Because one of the problems with IMAX in general is, you know, you get these amazing images, but the the cameras were never designed for narrative production. So they're kind of loud, you know, you can hear it in the mix or you've got to dub it and nobody likes doing a DR and yada, yada, yada. So these are supposed to be sort of like bodies and lenses that are designed for like IMAX narrative production. And that's fucking baller as shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm yep. so happy about this. I'm I'm giddy about it. I, I film is film is doing all right, I feel like. It's it's I was actually literally right before we hopped on the podcast, Kodak just released a new 120 like medium format version of their Kodak Gold 200, which I mean, that's that's a really good sign. Kodak Gold is kind of, it's like kind of an more it's i wouldn't say beginner but it's just like it's it's cheaper and and all that sort of thing and and usually you you know it's 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 only been available in 35 millimeter and then now it's it's medium format which means like more and more people are getting serious about film stuff again which is pretty cool and i mean i think obviously having new imax you know because there there was used to be like what like three in the entire world or something and just the fact that they're making new ones is great and i want all movies to be shot in film in IMAX and yes more of it (laughs) just more film I am just in like I love the the democratization of the process I love some of my favorite movies were shot on a digital format and I think it's beautiful and people can do insanely cool things so I always heavily caveat but boy do I love seeing IMAX in IMAX theaters it's just special and we should be so excited by this and encouraging of it as another way to create a part of the experience and the medium that happens in that way. It doesn't all have to be like that. I love the plurality available to artists and audiences. And yet having that higher priced entry and also it's going to be that level experience. If those things go together, when I hear about stuff like the story that, hey, maybe we'll charge a little more to see the Batman there's a part of me that's like, nah, I'm not paying more. But if you told me we're going to charge a little bit more and they do for the IMAX movies, then I would be like, fair. Like, I, like I'm like yeah. I'm in. And yes, sometimes those things are one and the same and that's fine. But like my, my feeling is like it creates a great scalability 
I like the idea of people going in and pitching like this. We're going to do this big in this way, or we're going to scale it way down in this way. You can still do something incredible. Like you can do something incredible on VHS. But I, I just love that more availability of that scale is thrilling. I mean, I also just like that, like, you know, it's the old Samuel Clemens uh, reports of my death have been premature. Like, it's not dead. It's going to keep going. Like, I remember I was reading an interview with a DP who was retiring in 2004. And like in the interview, he was like holding a BL in his lap. And he was and they were like, well, do you have any advice for young filmmakers? And his thing was like, I was told when I started in this industry in 1960 to go into video because film was about to die. And I just shot my last feature on film before retiring. So like, shoot what you want. Don't believe anybody who says anything is over. And I thought that was really great. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I remember being in film school in 2006 or 2005. And one of the other DPs there was like, I really want to become that guy that everybody looks to for HD. I want to be that HD guy that everybody's like, oh, he's like the HD master. And I was like, I mean, maybe, but like HD looks really shitty, especially in 2005. It looked really shit. And like, I just want to make cool images. And like, sometimes the right way to make that cool image is on film. And I want to make the coolest image possible. And and sometimes that is 35 anamorphic. And sometimes it's iPhone. And like, it's the it's the right tool to create the image you need to create is what's important. And like, yeah, I mean, I like that in 2022, people are like, Kodak opened a new lab in New York City in 2018, that was immediately too busy. Like as mm-hmm. soon as it opened, they were like, we were expecting six months to ramp up and we were immediately at max capacity. So like, film's not going anywhere. It's going to continue to keep going. And I love that we have room for that in the industry. All right, guys. Well, that was the No Film School podcast this week. I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at charleshain.com. And I'm doing more stuff on the YouTubes also at Charles Hain, So like, if you like YouTube stuff, check out my YouTube stuff. I'm, I'm doing more stuff there lately because... Because I might as well get with the program in 2010, and <laughs> in 2010 was I was about to and say so you might you might need to hop late. on TikTok, Charles. No, oh. no, nope, nope. Do it for your daughter. Nope. <laughs> Do it for no, history. I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding TikTok for my daughter. Historians will need to. They won't know yeah, you existed. Do it. Do yeah. it for the historians. Do it for the historians. Uh, I'm Todd Blingenship. You can find me on Instagram at Am I Filmmaker and YouTube as well. I'm DJ Hawkins. You can find me on social media at Lost in Graceland. And yep. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And you can find everything we talked about and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. Send us your questions. We didn't have time today, but we love getting them and we often answer them. And it leads to some really interesting discussions. So comments as well. Send them to editor at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check us out on Instagram and the YouTubes, which I've heard from Charles is a big deal these days and not on TikTok yet, I don't think. And also check out, you know, the Oscars, that thing is happening next weekend. We have a lot of interviews that we've done with nominated people who put a lot of work into these films from directors to sound design to costume design. Not all of them will be honored on that telecast, unfortunately, but they will all be honored on the No Film School podcast. Thanks so much for listening.